الجزيرة بودكاست Keep it halal, bro. Have you heard that phrase before? Well, it's no longer a joke or a light-hearted comment amongst Muslims anymore. You see, the word halal is Arabic for something that's religiously permissible to consume or use or do. And guess what? Today, it's become a huge industry worth tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. Hello, everyone. I'm Sami Zaydan, and you're listening to Essential Middle East Podcast. Businesses around the world are competing to get a slice of it. There are around 1.9 billion Muslims worldwide. In 2019, they spent 3.2% more money than in the previous year. Total sales for Islamic consumer goods were just over 2 trillion US dollars. Halal products could be anything from modest fashion, cosmetics, travel and food, to even marriage apps. The future prospects are also promising. Trade in the Islamic economy. We, we also cover the trade, halal trade in Islamic economy within the report. The OIC imports totaled $279 billion, and this is projected to grow by 3.8% within the next five years, by 2025. All right, let's dive in with our guest now. He's been described by some as a halal guru. Hello, my name is Professor Jonathan Wilson. I am a professor of brand strategy and culture. I'm joining you from London. And in particular, one of my research areas of expertise is halal. You know they call you the halal guru, don't you? It's kind of funny that, right? Because it's like mixing your religions. <laughs> <laughs> Can you mix your religions? Is that allowed? <laughs> well, in this day and age, I guess anything's possible, right? True. All right, so let's start with this halal industry. Is this a real thing, right? It's an industry, it's an economy, and it's booming. True, or is that hype? It's a real thing. It's a really real thing, but it's a surreal thing. You are right in wanting to ask the question whether there's a bit of hype. And I think one of the reasons for that is because we've seen a lot of reports come out over the past 10 years especially talking about predictions of the future and how huge this thing is going to be. And if I was to be super critical, I would say that times we've stalled because there are other factors in play that aren't really being reflected in some of the predictions. So on one side, I would say we can't escape the geopolitics of it all. And so there are some companies who are a little bit sensitive or hesitant about fully being engaged with the halal industry because of, I don't want to mention the T word, but I think we know what the T word is. That kind of affects the figures. But on the other side, yeah, there's a little bit of cheerleading from the Muslim community or Muslim nations wanting to inspire people to show them what we could be like. Oh my goodness, so the guru is having second thoughts? Is that how I can build this? No, I'm not having second thoughts. But what I would say is it's taking longer... Than expected. ...in key areas. And interest has gone through the roof. Definitely, there's interest, preference, there's conviction. There are loads of people that want more 
halal things, experiences, stuff. That hasn't gone away. Where it changes from time to time is, number one, people wanting to overtly label something as being halal and claim that space. And I think there are some areas where, you know, people are doing stuff which technically, according to the religion, is halal, but are debating whether we call ourselves halal or not. And if I give you a really basic example, let's go to comedy. If we go about 20 years ago, and let's look at South Asian comedians or South Asian origin comedians dominating in the kind of the ethnic minority space, we've got to give our, our credit to the African-Americans and black comedy. And it was hard for people from South Asia to get a foothold in because it was being dominated by blacks. But then we saw this kind of wave of interest with South Asian comedy. But then about 10 years later, and I think coinciding with the rise of halal, you saw a lot more South Asian Muslims calling themselves South Asian Muslim comedians and even Muslim comedians, so Muslim first and South Asian second. So I think that some of it is about fashion and cycles, but the real business is still being transacted. You mentioned interest going through the roof. Why? Why is it booming? It's definitely identity. I think where it's growing is the confidence within which Muslims want to proclaim they are doing something which is everyday living but is also an act of worship and is positively proselytizing their Islamic identity or their Muslim identity. Now, this isn't anything new, because if we think about, go back 100 years and think about some of the great top American brands, if you go into their origins and roots, many of them had founders who were from Christianity and were proud Christians who saw part of their purpose on this planet as being proselytizing Christianity through doing good business, creating good products, sending them around the world, giving people jobs, and, and showing how great it is to be like the founders and, and the people involved. Now, where it becomes also interesting is that we can't escape post 9-11. It's getting a bit long in the tooth now because we're talking like 20 years or so ago. Went to the T word. Well, I'm not going to say the T word, but what I will say is that it's interesting because you've got now Muslims who are in this space who were not alive or were very young when all of this was happening, when 9-11 was happening. But then you've got an older population, such as myself, who lived through that experience. And what we see after 9-11 is that there was a lot more emphasis from the Muslim community around the world at wanting to dispel negative stereotypes. And one of the best ways to do that is to put food on a plate, is to entertain people, and to make everyone seem like you're like everyone else, that you can live like everyone else. And I think that Muslims saw this as an opportunity in a positive way to improve the economics because, I mean, the other side of it is, post 9-11, some people were struggling to get jobs. But hang on, Professor, can it go mainstream? Because some might argue at the end of the day, there is a kind of a religious barrier here, right? If you're not a Muslim, why would you be interested in the halal industry? If you're not a black person, why are you interested in black music and black comedy? Because it's cool. It's fun. Right. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. So Muslims are missing a trick. Like, you know, sometimes I think that Muslims or non-Muslims look at halal and they segment according to, are you a Muslim or are you a non-Muslim? And they think that that's how the industry works. But the reality is, if you get to the heart of it, it's yet another alternative way of viewing the world and living your life in the same way as, you know, people have been mesmerized by other cultures from outside of their own. So when there was a craze of people getting into Kung Fu or Karate 
or people now want to drink kombucha or sushi or any of these things. There is a cultural, ethno-cultural aspect to halal. And I think that Muslims should try harder to kind of embrace that and to share it with other people. Interesting. So this could really transcend based on what the shared common values of, you know, doing, I don't know, more ethical business as opposed to selling it only as halal business as a religious thing that, you know, we don't we don't oppress people with interest or something like that. Yeah, I mean, because there has been talk of the number of customers who take up Islamic finance and look at pension funds and, you know, a significant number of those clients are non-Muslim and they do see the value in those things. It could be that they see the value, they too don't agree with usury, or also it's just the fit. So the size of the organisation fits well with the size of the bank and they get a better service. So it's a little bit more complicated than... So, like, you think some of these halal businesses or industries could cross over beyond Muslims based on what? Yeah, I do think that could really happen because if you look at Islamic finance, some people who are not Muslim are against usury and we can also see the performance within pension funds and investments which have Sharia-compliant portfolios and it's worked really well. But I also think that with some of those businesses that have had Islamic finance accounts, it's been about the fit of the bank to the size of the business and they've received a better quality service based upon size. So it isn't necessarily just the shared kind of religious values that we're talking about, but those things are important. And with any alternative way of looking at things, so at the minute, yeah, vegans are kind of trending and in fashion, and there are plenty of people who would call themselves flexitarian who like the idea of consuming less meat but don't want to go vegan. And I think that halal could be something very similar for people outside of that kind of nucleus of the faithful. Interesting. Flexitarian. I like that term. All right. We've touched on halal finance. We've touched, I think, a little bit on halal comedy, if we can call it that. What sectors are the biggest in the halal industries? Food is the driving force. It's the thing that people put inside their mouth every day. And then everything outside of that, I think, is up for debate or discussion. So we mentioned finance, but the reality is there are plenty of banks now where you can turn off the interest on your account. So you don't necessarily need an Islamic finance bank account. People might talk about modest fashion and the fashion industry. And I think that has potential but the challenge that you've got with some of the classifications according to what in the Gulf they call the global Islamic economy is some things don't squarely fit within the silos that have been created. So, for example, you have modest fashion. Now, Nike has a sports hijab. Or if you think about Adidas producing different cuts of tracksuits for women, you know, clothing can be worn in a variety of ways. And so... I always find it's interesting when people try to claim something as being an Islamic item of clothing, when it could just be a rectangular piece of cloth that could be from a designer label brand. And so there are more brands now that if you, you know, you can go to Paris and you can see some Louis Vuitton scarves are tied like hijab on the mannequins. And that transforms how people see those items. So you've got fashion, tourism is one that has been tagged as growing. But I think one of the challenges is that as the mainstream learns of the potential, they also adapt. So this idea of kind of a halal economy being separate to a mainstream economy, well, the lines become blurred in very much the same way as other alternative forms of items. Burberry, Dolce & Gabbana and DKNY have all attempted to crack one of the fastest growing markets, Islamic fashion. 
What started off with brands targeting wealthy Muslims with one-off fashion lines for religious occasions has now grown to a global trend for women who prefer to dress conservatively. But hang on, when the big guns get involved, when like big brands start to tap into the market, does it have the same value? I mean, you mentioned your example, you gave like the bank can give you the option to switch off interest. But is it the same? Because they might still be using your money to generate interest. They're just not going to give it to you, right? So I don't know. I guess are some purists not going to accept it when the big brands come in? There are some people that want to continue to be on their own doing it themselves. And there are others who actually crave to want to go mainstream or to be accepted, which is why sometimes I think that when you look at the trends, not all Muslims want to go to a holiday destination, engage in halal tourism on their own with only Muslims. Some Muslims want to have experiences with everybody else. That's just how humans are. And some people want to do that from time to time. Like, you know, maybe sometimes, you know, if you live, if you're a Muslim minority, you want to go on holiday to a halal resort where you're only around Muslims, it's only halal food. You don't have to worry about where your eyes are looking when people, because there are no bikinis, you know, bobbling around where you are on the beach. So that's great, but that doesn't mean that that's how you want to live every day, maybe for a couple of weeks. And I think that's one of the things where people have perhaps overestimated. But when things go mainstream, it could be transformational because... I want to call out Ms. Marvel as the series that came out from Marvel Studios on Disney+. Plus. She was an interesting character, and I did talk to some people who hadn't even watched the series who are Muslim and said, like, well, you know, Disney, you know, it's going to be bad for Muslims. I bet they're going to do this. But I asked people to watch the series, and I thought what was interesting was that, you know, if you look at who she was created by two Muslim female writers... It's hit records that have surpassed other series in the Marvel Universe that she was a South Asian diaspora in New Jersey, Muslim. And the point that I made at one talk was she's probably the most significant superhero in the whole universe for Muslims because she brought Allah into the conversation because prior to that, people didn't talk about God. Superheroes acted as God. But Ms. Marvel abrogated all of those behaviours by doing her Salah in a mosque and basically showing that Allah exists within the Marvel Universe. And so to me, that was quite profound. So I think there is... I am a great believer in mainstream potential. Well, is this happening now? Are mainstream brands being forced to change their strategies because of the halal market? The smart brands are skillfully adding on to their offerings. So I mentioned Nike with the headscarf. It's just another item on their product line. Fast food brands are probably the smartest because they understand that, you know, the halal economy is all about eating. So if you're McDonald's, then, you know, it's no problem to remove pork from the menu in, you know, in Israel and, you know, to have halal in Morocco and halal in Malaysia and Dubai. And it's pretty frictionless, right? And even the best example is that, you know, that when they went to India, they didn't put beef on the menu, they took it off the menu. So your beef burger is now Maharajamak and is made of chicken. So fast food brands have done well. KFC, obviously, it's chicken, so it's fairly straightforward for them. The question that I have for some of the fast food brands is how many of them want to actually experiment or change perceptions in Muslim minority markets? Now, KFC has, and I have done some work with them, where they do have quite a number of uh, halal KFCs in the UK, and they also report that the profits are much higher in these halal restaurants. Really? Interesting. Yeah, inner city areas, yeah. 
much higher, but it's not something that they cheerlead about. And I think it goes back to that point I made at the beginning about being sensitive about how a vocal minority basically are looking to put a spanner in the works, right? That, you know, Islam is a threat, like, you know, halal is bad. And they give these examples. And to be fair, I think the Muslim community globally has been poor at learning how to respond to this vocal minority. And so I think I want to highlight two areas I think that we need to do better. One of them is taking something like halal, which at its heart is coming from the religious scriptures, from the Quran. And how do you translate that into a language and a method of communication, a style and a tone that works in everyday lived experiences? Because a lot of discussions on halal pretty much go along the lines of, oh, you who believe, <laughs> you know, therefore you should consume this. Yeah, um, but it doesn't have the cool that we were talking about. And that also works hand in hand with how you respond to a vocal minority who is basically trying to behave in a really toxic way, just fighting them toe to toe and then getting involved in debates about politics or, or trying to rationalize it doesn't work. But having a smart mouth and a wicked sense of humor and a dash of cool, I think would do a lot more. Well, this brings us close to the question then of who halalifies it, if I, I think I just invented a verb there, you know, the halal certificate industry, you know, the regulations and checks for it. Been a bit of controversy, hasn't there? Yeah, there is. I call it the halal wars, a bit like Star Wars, right? You know, you had a new hope and then you had the Empire Strikes Back <laughs> and then the, probably the return of the Jedi or the return of the rabbi or I don't know what. Oh, you're a purist on your Star Wars uh, movies like me, the first generation, eh? Yeah, of course, you've got to start with number four, right? And then we'll, we'll go all the way back. But I think that, you know, in contrast to kosher, and kosher we have to give respect to from the Jewish tradition, because if we go to much further back, probably about 100 years, to North America, the Jewish community realised that labelling, certifying and labelling products was a good thing to do. So they knew what they could consume. And much later, a few decades later, the Muslims decided that that was also a good thing to do. Yeah, but it's a bit different, isn't it? Because you've got, in maybe in other religions, a sort of clergy, a rabbinical authority. You don't have a clergy in Islam, so then you've got people popping up with their halal certificates. Yeah, it's a fair point. The difference between Islam and Judaism is that Judaism is far more prescriptive in its rules, and Islam encompasses something which I'd call, let's call it the spirit in spirituality, or, you know, there are some things which are not black and white, and there is room for, for discussion and debate. And I think that's where you start to see different certification bodies interpret and apply in different ways. So you might think about, you know, the stunning of animals, and there are debates. Some people have a hard line that you cannot because it didn't happen at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And others talk about recovery stunning and providing scientific evidence. And so this is where you have what I would consider to be healthy discussions. And, you know, cascading off from those, you have certification bodies. There are accrediting bodies who give certification bodies the permission to issue certificates. And within those certification bodies, you'll see that in different countries, they have different requirements. And to a consumer, you might think it's just confusing. So if I give you an example, in Malaysia... There are certification bodies that won't certify ginger beer. Because of the name? Yeah, because of the name. Because they think that it would be confusing. Or hot dogs. So if you want, or root beer, you'd have to change the name. So it's not a hot dog anymore, it's a chicken sausage. Or it's not root beer, it's RB. Um, now, if you don't grow up in that area, like for me coming from Europe, 
Like, you know, of course I know ginger beer is an alcoholic and root beer is, you know, and hot dogs are not dogs. But I get that in a different cultural context, they might not get that. And that's why the certification body takes a stance, which I think they are allowed to do, but is not prescribed within the religion. How does it actually work? Explain to listeners, does each country have their own halal board or is it, you know, how does it work? There are a number of certification bodies who exist and they have got their, if you want to call it permission, from accreditation authorities within different countries, right? So they often work in dialogue with each other. I know a number of certifiers and we all talk and debate with each other. And what you find is that different countries might impose different conditions. I'm glad we got to money. How much is it worth? I think there was a global Islamic economy report that projected it to be more than $330 billion by the year 2025. Does that make sense to you? Gazillion and quadrillion dollars is what I spoke about. Gazillion and quadrillion. I like that. I've lost... How, how many zeros have you got in a quadrillion? <laughs> Those are made-up terms, but I should give a shout-out. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Halal Branding. I basically said something like, you see these predictions of a gazillion, quadrillion dollars, but how do people actually know how to profit from them or how to get on? Predictions are based upon a series of assumptions. So I think it's possible... But if you drill down, you want to know what those assumptions are, right? All right. According to the standards of our halal guru, Professor Jonathan, just give us an idea. What, according to what you see, what are we talking about? What's the value? See, you want to put me on the spot, but I'm genuinely thinking. To be honest, yeah, my professional opinion, I don't like to put a prediction on a whole heap of different sectors in one number. But I think that it's missing the point because the number is too large because the factors are too large on particular economies. But it's a lot of money, can we say that? It's a lot of money, but then if we look at the predictions, some of the predictions are based upon, okay, this is a Muslim country, this has got 200 million Muslims. So if we think about some of the ontology linked to that, some of the predictions are Muslim country, this many Muslims, therefore they would eat halal. I know you consult for major brands. Is this what you tell them? We've had some conversations some fast food companies, but, you know, all of the big brands are mindful of what's going on. I guess my biggest request is that we can kind of come forward and celebrate that. That doesn't mean that you have to put a halal stamp everywhere. The past decade in the halal industry has generated a lot of headlines. We've seen a lot of Muslim influencers, Muslim comedians, like a lot of ambassadors who've come forward and... I'd like to think that the next decade, you know, kind of at a crossroads where we can start to do some really hard work. So rather than relying too much on the headlines and predictions as to what the future can be like, which is a bit like science fiction in some ways, actually becomes science fact. Do we see instances of backlash? Halal product ads in, I don't know, Germany being used by far-right groups? Yeah, there's a backlash. I mean, even individually, like, if I write about halal, I will get trolled. If I write in the mainstream, I've had horrible things said to me. So I think that inevitably there is always going to be a backlash, but I think that similarly businesses need to do so and they're being asked to do so on so many areas. It's not just halal, it's sustainability, it's gender equality, it's racial equality, it's religious tolerance, there's gender issues. Um, it's becoming really tricky for businesses full stop. And I think that, you know, I applaud the Muslim community for reminding people that a quarter of the world's population are really important. But 
let's not just sell ourselves in the back that we are avid consumers. We're really important for a number of reasons. And that's why I'm kind of a little bit hesitant about the, the, the massive gazillion, quadrillion dollar predictions. We're, we're more than that. Strong enough in the sense that you've got people that are certifying whose focus is on ingredients, agriculture, chemicals, but they're not skilled in PR, branding, marketing, lobbying. We actually need to create professions in these areas to support the halal industry. I'd love to think the halal industry could fight their own corner, but the reality is we can't. We need the next wave of interest, probably the younger generation who are more kind of enthusiastic, skilled and passionate that are going to take this forward. Well, talking about the youth, hang on, are they the main consumers, the generation... I don't know what we call them now. Generation M? ZZ. Well, for Muslims, maybe it's Generation M. <laughs> yeah, there was a book by Shalina Jan Mohammed, and she had a book called Generation M, and she put forward this idea of the Muslim millennial. And I think that it's an interesting concept. I think in some respects it's more... I think it fits in with a trend that was happening in the UK or some Muslim minority countries. I don't know if it's as universal or as as was reported. Are they the main consumers of the halal industry products or is it much wider than that? It's wider because I would say that if you look at the younger population, what they're demonstrating is that they are, they're very into values and purpose. Professor, this has been a great chat. That's because of you, Sammy. Thank you. Well, I can't resist it now, so I'm going to say it. Keep it halal, bro. <laughs> Come on, that's the street expression. <laughs> Oh, I'm showing, I think I'm beyond that cool age, but thanks so much, Professor Jonathan. It's been great talking to you. You too. And thank you for joining us on this episode. The show was produced by Khalid Sultan and sound designed by George Alwir. Our lead engagement producer is Ayal Malik and our assistant engagement producer is Munira Dosari. And of course, the man making all of this happen, our big boss, the executive producer, Omar Saleh. I'm your host, Sammy Zaydan. For now, it's goodbye.